Hello and welcome back to the Exchanges Discourse Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gareth J. Johnson. Now we are a companion podcast to the Interdisciplinary Exchanges Journal, which has been published for the last 10 years by Warwick's Institute of Advanced Study. Now in most of our episodes, we are talking to authors who have published with the journal about their research, about their academic publication experiences, but also asking them about the advice they've got for new academic authors. On occasion, we also focus in on journal developments itself. In today's episode, we'll be talking with one of our past authors about their paper, about their work, and about their thoughts on publishing too. We are back once again. We're talking to another of our authors in our glorious 10th anniversary issue, and I'm absolutely delighted this morning to welcome Beth Montague-Helen onto the podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. It's absolute delight. We've just been exchanging notes on uh, the relatively frostiness and snowiness of our locations in the UK. And uh, Beth has won, I'm afraid, because she's in Sheffield. So that just beats me hands down in the Midlands. What we like to talk about first is get a little bit about yourself. So, Beth, you know, tell us more about yourself, what you do and what you're doing at the moment. So I'm the head of library and information services at Francis Crick Institute in London. So for those who don't know what the Francis Crick Institute is, we're a pretty large biomedical institute we're charity funded mostly so we're funded by the medical research uh, council we're funded by cancer research uk and we're funded by the wellcome trust so they give us quite a lot of money mm. <laughs> um, and what i do is i help the researchers get information in so you know we buy journals and books mm. and things like that but i also do an awful lot of work helping them get their research out so helping them to publish yeah so that's mostly what i do help help helping researchers with open access with open data mm. that sort of thing is is where i'm really excited about and for those um, a long time listeners of the podcast will know i used to be an academic librarian so this is all meat and drink to me before i kind of went across the dark divide and became more of an academic so <laughs> well you submitted a paper to us, which I was really excited about because it's on that hot topic of AI and chat GPT. It was entitled Placing Chat GPT in the Context of Disruptive Technology in Academic Publishing. And if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, there is a link in the description of the episode below. But Beth, in your own words, tell us a bit more about what the article is about. Yeah, sure thing. So... When ChatGPT came out, I, like many other people, went on, had a play, thought, oh, my goodness, this is this is amazing. And, you know, was was quite surprised, I think, and quite shocked, like many people, about what it could do. Mm. And all these articles came out, that, oh, it can take this test and come in the top 5% and all of this sort of thing. And then after that kind of big rush, there was sort of another rush, I think, of people going, oh, oh no, this is terrifying. It's going to take my job, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And I think I say so this article, it puts ChatGPT in a list of technologies, essentially, mm -hmm. that have appeared and have changed academic publishing. And when they've come out, they've been either exciting or terrifying or a mix mm -hmm. of the two. But we've essentially assimilated them. And now they're just normal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's mm -hmm. You know, that's where I think ChatGPT and, and generative AI in general is going. At the moment, you know, depending mm. on which side of the fence you are, it might be terribly exciting, it might be terribly <laughs> terrifying, you might be in the middle. But, you know, I think eventually we'll find its place and how it can help us 
do the things that humans are good at without mm. necessarily replacing the things mm. humans are good at. I mean, I always think back to my school days because, you know, and this is a bit of a confession as an editor, you know, my spelling was terrible. And the thing I heard again and again from teachers was, well, it's OK. By the time Gareth's at, you know, university or in the working world, computers will spell for him. Well, yes, they do a lot of the time. My spelling has got folks a little better. I have to confess I have worked at it. But, you know, I, I'm still someone who, when I write something, I look at it again, just going to run that through the spell checker. And I certainly have to admit, I have found myself in recent months when I'm wanting to write some zesty copy for something. So describing a video or talking about um, a fourth commission of the journal, I do go off to chat GPT and similar sites and say, go on, give me something to work with initially. Yeah. It's kind of a piece of clay, to, if anything. And I think that's I think that's the key of where we are at the moment. Uh, it, it helps you do that initial thing. You know, the white page mm. syndrome is dreadful. Mm. You know, you sit mm. there, Word is open on your desktop, and you're like, I, I, I don't know how to start. You can give a prompt to ChatGPT, uh, or, you know, other, other tools are out there, and it will give you something to start with. Mm. I, I tend to find that what it comes out with is a bit banal. And I do talk about that in, in the article because it, you know, it tends to the mean it, it's not coming up with anything exciting because mm. it, it can't do that. All it can mm. do is copy what's already out there. And so if, if you use it as the end point, actually what you write is boring. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it's very samey as well. Uh, so I've been uh, running a Dungeons and Dragons group mm. with my niece and nephew. Oh, excellent! So they're they're quite small, and we've been. So I've been. You know, you have to think up descriptions. Oh, okay, mm. we're going into this inn, and you just think, oh gosh, how do I describe an inn? And ChatGPT, brilliant for this. You know, I've been doing this, but what I find is that you know when I get to the fourth room, I'm like. Yeah, this sounds exactly the same as the last thing I wrote. So the first one, I, I pretty much just took it in as it was because I thought this is great. Yeah. You know, I like this. Yeah. And then as it's gone on, I've had to edit more and more because they all sound the same. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a story, actually, of a, a friend who got ChatGPT to help them write a cover letter for a job application. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, this is perfect. This is great. You know, here's my CV. Help me show show the things that i'm good at and he knew one of the people who was doing the recruiting and they came back to him and said you used chat gpt for this didn't you and he was like how do you know this and it's because they had about 10 different people whose letters all started in exactly the same way wow that <laughs> so those trends starting to show i mean I, I do in my spare time i do i do hiking videos you know it's, it's, it's such a niche tedious thing i'm a nerd at heart and I say, oh, you know, how do you beat the algorithm of YouTube? I'll get ChatGPT to write my introductions to these. Every time it comes out with text that, for me, I think is me with sugar rush <laughs> going on because it just it's just full of hyperbole. It's like, no, 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 no. I've got to kind of modify this down. This isn't the world-breaking epic hike to end all hikes. It's an interesting ramble through Norfolk. That's what it actually is. And <laughs> yes, I find absolutely. myself saying, no, not quite like that. And again, I, a lot of it's returned. Yeah, you've just jumbled the words around. You've spun it around. It seems very samey. But again, great starting point, I have to say. And I think that's the other thing as well, that often the thing that comes out of ChatGPT is not going to be the final thing you're getting out of ChatGPT because you, mm. you write, 
you write your first prompt and you go, mm. okay, well, not not quite like that. And you give it a bit more information and, and you maybe give it some examples and it, it can get closer to what you yeah. want. But you do have to work with it. It's not a magic button. Mm. Um, someone someone talked about it the other day in terms of uh, – so, which works very well with the article. It's similar to when Google came out. Mm. Google mm. came out. And lots of people had no idea how to use it to search for things. I mean, when I was at university, we were still using um, Ask Jeeves quite a lot. Wow. Um, and <laughs> yeah. Ask Jeeves specifically wanted you to ask a question. Mm. Mm. It was meant to be written in that way. And then so then when Google came out, lots of people were doing that. And most of those words are useless to Google. Mm, mm. It's then trying to pull out the bits you actually want. I can remember seeing people, you know, putting things into Google. You know, can you please find me this thing about this, please? And I said, yes. Now, admittedly, I've, I've occasionally said please and thank you to chat GPT, I realise now. But I'm just trying to keep my future um, robot overlords happy. Oh, well, absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do it for Alexa as well. Uh, we have Alexa <laughs> at home and always, always say please and thank you. It's very important. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the thing is it's, it's learning to use it uh, in the right way. Mm. And, you know, that's not necessarily always terribly obvious to people to start with. But I think you can, you know, you can use it for really useful things. And I think it's just it's the most important thing for me is making sure that you're not taking the human out of the equation. Mm. Because, of course, the other one of the other really big things about ChatGPT is it's not a search engine. Mm. It's not designed to find facts. Mm. Often it will find facts for you because it's got all this information that it's trained mm. on. And and often it's it's sort of easier for the algorithm to get it right than it is yeah. to get it wrong so it will find facts for you but also sometimes it will just make things up because mm. it looks right all it's it's the thing that i uh, i think is a really good way of thinking about it is mm. that if you know when you get your phone and there's mm. a little game and they'll say oh put this starting thing in and then press the middle button until mm. you get a sentence mm. uh, my personality is press yeah. the middle button, press, you know, yeah. something like that. That's essentially what ChatGPT is doing. It's guessing the next word in the sentence, which might be the right word, or it might just be a word that looks nice. I know my, my other half, um, she's um, a, ge a geographer, and she, she's been kind of using it and experimenting with it as well because she has interesting sort of computer methods. And the gales of laughter I've heard coming out of her adjoining office to mine at times of some of the facts it's brought mm -hmm. back are entertaining. But again, it's still embryonic in some cases. So, you know, it's it can only get better in that respect, I suppose. Absolutely. And, mm. and you've just got to have the person there who can check that. So I think, you know, it's not one of the things that I think people worry about is that it takes away the need for expertise. Mm. But actually, it really doesn't, because without having that expert there to check it, then you could be putting all sorts of nonsense mm. out mm. there. I Last week, I was using it to get me some statistical code in R. Mm. So yeah. I learned R a long time ago, mm. and now as a librarian, I barely ever use it. And so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I managed to avoid it. I did think about it for a while, and I thought, you know what? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I really like coding. I I so I, before being a librarian, I was a bioinformatician um, mm. for ten years. So I used to code a lot, uh, 
But as I say, I hardly do it now. And so every time I want to do it, it takes quite a long time to remember how to do just really simple things. Mm. So actually, ChatGPT was brilliant for that. You know, okay, how do I run a chi-squared test in R? Mm. It came up with the code. I put it in. There were a few errors. I sent them back to ChatGPT and said, okay, why am I getting this error? It, it gave me some ideas why I might. It helped me debug. And it took me, you know, a quarter of the time mm. it would have taken me to do it myself. I then asked it to do another thing, and it completely made up a module in R. So, right. <laughs> Oh, I, I had the chills there when you mentioned the chi square test. That was oh, I've not I've not done one of those in decades. <laughs> It'll be double tail tail t test next and everything. Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, you know, ChatGPT can do a chi squared test for you quite easily. Mm. That, that would have saved me so much time as an undergraduate. That really would. <laughs> I spent a lot of time with tables and data trying to do that hand crank that kind of thing. So you know, so again, a tool. Useful, yeah, absolutely. Know. That's the thing. It's a mm. tool. Saves you time. But if if I hadn't understood what the code looked like, mm. what it should look like, how it was meant to mm. run within the, within R, then you know I could have been doing almost anything. But because I knew what it should look like, the kind of outputs I should be getting, what mm. was reasonable, then that was fine because that, the human in the loop is checking it. Yeah. Well, if you haven't read the article yet, I would I would strongly recommend it. It's a it's a cracking read and it's about, as I say, a really topical point we've got at the moment. One of the other things we touch on this podcast, and we obviously touch on the article as well, the whole world of publication. And I always like to ask this cheeky question of people about their kind of memorable experience of publishing, good, bad, indifferent. So tell me about have you had any really memorable experiences in with publishing things? Yeah, so I've sort of had two lives of publishing really mm. because as i was a biologist for mm. you know, 10 mm. years i you know used to publish in that world and actually just as i was leaving i had some dreadful experiences publishing with quite with some very harsh reviewers saying you know just just ripping everything apart in, in a, yeah. you know in a very unprofessional way it's absolutely fine for people to say you know, this is wrong or this yeah, needs changing yeah. or whatever. But, you know, it's that unprofessional kind of really going for people way. And I think that does happen quite a lot in some fields. And I I, I was leaving anyway to go and be a librarian because mm. that was you know, the, the, the point I was at. But I had always planned on finishing those papers and I didn't mm. because... Because of those reviewers, I just thought, you know, why am I putting myself yeah, through this? Yeah. <laughs> so although I'm now publishing again, it's not something I have to do in mm, my current mm. career. I'm doing it because actually I like to do research and I mm. like to put my my thoughts out there, but I don't have to do it. And so if I come across a dreadful experience, what, why would I keep pushing yeah. myself through that, you know? Uh it's one of the things we always keep in mind at exchanges. I mean, you know, because so many of our um, authors are so earlier in their career and, you know, they haven't developed the, and I'm going to put this in inverted commas, necessary thick skin that we seem to need to develop in academia for these kind of barbed comments. And it's one of the reasons we mediate our feedback to people. We get the editors to read it through and say, look, you know, do check in here to make sure there's nothing that's actually going to upset someone to such a degree that they might then be so dispirited they'll just go just no i'm just not bothering with this anymore it's supposed to be about improving their work especially about giving them the opportunity to develop as researchers as writers as authors 
it's not about giving the uh, reviewer their axe to grind though i agree i have seen some that yeah, i was gonna say turn my hair white turn my hair whiter possibly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. thankfully fewer and far between non-exchanges but on the other hand you do you do see them and they are shocking at times <laughs> yeah so i i so i published in exchanges this year and i've also published in another library mm. journal this Excellent. year and those are my first experiences in publishing in in the kind of library mm. side mm. of things and i have to say it has been much much better <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I always remember what i want to say i was one bit of feedback i got in a library journal i was writing for and it was just someone said yes good article that's peer review. I was expecting a little more than that, a critique, a suggestions for improvements, developments. Thankfully, the other reviewers had comments, but it was like, that's all the reviewer had to say. I do wonder if in fields like like uh, librarian studies, mm. kind of professional fields rather than mm. research fields mm. necessarily, that there are less, that people are less experienced in doing reviews. Mm. They're mm. possibly less aware of what people are looking for in reviews but i think also they have less axes to grind mm, they're unlikely mm. to also be you know, oh well i've got a paper i'm publishing in this field and i don't <laughs> want them to get there first and i'm gonna you know or, or competing theories i know i've had that in the past where you can tell who it is and you know that they don't like your theory because it doesn't mm. work with their theory and you can see that in the reviews sometimes that kind of jockeying for position you know I, I i once had that at a conference when i was presenting some of my doctoral work and a senior body in a funder i won't mention the name of just more or less says well everything you've done has been from the completely wrong direction you shouldn't have started there you should have started over here this is where you should have done this is what your research should have been about it's like well okay fine thank you for the comment but that's actually not the direction i'm taking it in and while it's a valid comment you've made Great, here I am, a you know, new researcher. I'm just feel about two foot tall. And I've seen it happen again at other conferences. There was an event I was at in uh, Vienna, and I the speaker before I went on, someone in the audience, very senior professor, just amazed their research and tore them down. And I thought, oh, I don't want to go on the stage now. And that was that was speaking live but it's the same in publication if you get that yeah. sort of experience, it's, oh. absolutely and you know it's important that publications are accurate that they're as mm. good as they can be mm. you know all of this sort of thing and particularly you know in the last 10 years the amount of publication has increased enormously mm. so mm. you know it is really important that publications are are accurate and and as excellent as they can be but there is a professional and reasonable way to go mm. about these things and i think you know people don't always do that i think having the editors mediate is an excellent thing because i mean you you sometimes come across uh, they're quite often shared on social media you'll get mm. really unprofessional things that people say one of the things that actually i mentioned in the article <laughs> is the the experience that some people who don't have English as a first language mm, get, mm. where reviewers will say someone with English as a first language needs to read this or be part of the team. And you hear about that quite a lot. Mm. I mean, often you actually hear about people saying it to people who are English born and bred and just don't write very well. But you hear that. And often it comes from a completely unprofessional yeah. place. Yeah. And that's not the role, you know, if it's if it's not 
if you're not able to understand it, that's one thing. But it's not the role of the reviewer to say, oh, no, you need an English person to be on the team to make sure that, you know, you're using the right verb. I mean, for goodness sake. I mean, it, it's been my experience that more often than not, it's those the non-English language speakers who are writing for certainly for exchanges whose uh, grammar is far more accurate than mine. Absolutely. Because they've like, learned it properly. Yeah, exactly. They haven't <laughs> learned it just by listening to people and, you know, the, sh- the, the experience of the British education system. No, no, they've learned it properly as a second language or a third language. And it's, it's, it's brilliant stuff. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you, you do get those kind of unprofessional things. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I, it was one of the uses of generative AI that I kind of mentioned in that actually, <laughs> you know, you could run your language through that <laughs> and say, you know, you rewrite it for an English speaker. But yeah, so so I think you do get you do get un, unprofessional behaviour like <laughs> that. But equally, I, I think there are brilliant reviewers out there. I don't want I don't want to be unfairly maligned. No, absolutely. You know, people do it voluntarily and their free time, and it's the only way publishing keeps going, isn't it? Yeah, really? it really is. I mean, I, I, I have seen some cracking reviews, some really generous ones. There was one we had earlier this year that I swear was longer than the article itself. It was a beautiful analysis. It was really fair-handed. The, the, the reviewer had spent a lot of time crafting it and trying to say, you know, look, you know, I'm, this is not me dismantling your research as such, but these are these areas I'm really concerned about. But this is how I could redevelop it. This is other areas you could develop. It was so wonderful. It was one of the best reviews I've seen on the journal in the five years I've been here. So they are out there. There's great reviewers as well. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> say, I mean, are you, are you working on anything for publication at the moment then, Beth? I mean, that you, you can talk about. In case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I've got a couple of projects going. I'm I always have far more ideas than I have time for, um, which, you know, I think many of us probably suffer from that. So problem. true. But this year, actually, I'm I'm working more with collaborators, which mm. which helps, I think, because part of the issue that I often have is I'll go off oh, very excited about a new project. I've got this idea. I'll go and do some stuff. And then as time goes on, you sort of start to think, well, actually, is this important? Does anyone care? And often in the past will then stop publishing. So mm. I had a seven year gap between publishing. Yeah. Because all of these ideas I just sort of ended up thinking, oh gosh, no, I don't think anyone cares. So anyway, I'm working with other people now to try and help that. So I'm working on a publication with some other librarians about transformative agreements. Mm. Um mm. so that's one thing that we're working on. And then I've just started putting together a team to work on a systematic review about whether there is a citation advantage that's different between gold open access and green open access because oh, generally we yes. look at we look we look at citation advantage of open access but i mm, think there's mm. i think there's quite a lot of um, papers out there addressing it and the thing about those studies is that they're published in all sorts of places a biology team will look at biology papers and publish it in a biology journal mm-hmm. and then you know a, a social sciences team will publish it somewhere there so it's quite hard i think for everyone to find all of that mm-hmm. literature hence why mm-hmm. we're going to do a systematic review so yeah and then i'm also doing another another review project that's looking at data management policies within mm-hmm. universities so a kind of widespread of things yeah yeah but, but <laughs> wide but interesting i'd say that so yeah, yeah. excellent 
we've kind of touched on some of the, the aspects, but I, I always like to close the podcast with asking a question around, um, you know, publishing with first time authors and the advice you as an author and someone who's particularly gifted in being in two different fields and publishing would like to pass on, you know, what are those bits of advice? Yes, I think the thing that's worked really well for me this year is contacting editors before submitting. Mm. So I did that with both of these publications that I've had this year and just presenting your paper, your ideas and saying, you know, is this something you're interested in? What what's the best format for it? And that sort of thing, because I think otherwise you can spend quite a lot of time crafting a paper, getting it in the right format. You send it out and then you get Mm. a desk reject. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, "Yeah, it just it wasn't right for the paper. (laughs) It wasn't right for the journal. Mm. And that that's very dispiriting, I think, particularly for first time authors or early career authors. And I think that's something people don't don't necessarily always consider Mm -hmm. uh, strongly Mm -hmm. enough when they're starting that Mm -hmm. actually a lot of the time when things get rejected from a journal, it's not because it's not good. It's because it didn't fit for the journal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, I, I quite often have a you know, conversation with authors, some of whom would then still submit to us, some of them who then decide to go to the direction. And it's just nice to just talk over, oh, that's your idea. Well, you know, as you say, you know, this is the sort of format I'd recommend, but, you know, perhaps try this format. But on occasion, I've had to go back and go, yeah, I think we're not quite the right journal for you. But, you know, so thank you. Sounds good. Yes. But I might go over to these places instead. You know? Yeah, I think that I think that just helps. I think the other thing for me, because, mm. you know, as I say, sometimes i'm not great at kind of actually getting to the finish line Mm. on these projects if you've already talked to the editor about it and said oh i'm going to be submitting Mm -hmm. this paper that's really helpful for getting you over the line that very much (laughs) helped with this paper (laughs) you've made you've made a stick to prod yourself with as a result so absolutely absolutely yeah if i you know if i've got someone waiting for me to do something i say oh yeah i'll i'll be submitting in march Mm. then I need to get on and do the thing. (laughs) I think that can be helpful. Wonderful. Well, Beth, thank you so much for chatting with us today on the Exchanges Discord podcast. I genuinely enjoyed that. Great. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. And as I mentioned, folks, if you want to read Beth's paper, there is a link to it in the description below. And of course, I'd like to thank my guest for coming in to talk with us today. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Exchanges Discord podcast with myself, Dr. Garrett J. Johnson. Now, if you wanted to find out more about the Exchanges Journal, the publications we've been discussing, there, of course, are links in the episode description. You can also find us easily online by searching for Exchanges Journal Warwick. Of course, if you have a question or want to get in touch with me directly, you can reach us by email as exchangesjournal, that's all one word, at warwick.ac.uk. And you'll also find us on Twitter, Blue Sky and Mastodon too. Thank you very much for listening. And of course, don't forget to share, like and subscribe to make sure you catch every single episode of the Exchanges Discord podcast.